something and something. Come on, Eileen. Something, so something, something, Um, yeah, Into the Paint, episode four. This is Anthony Tino, your host on every episode. I don't know why you think it would be something different this time. Um, actually, I have been interviewed in the past, and, um, and some of those podcasts were actually the reason why I decided to, to take up this medium. So, um... You know, this could be a good time to actually shout out some of my influences. That would be Paper Cuts podcast. That's Chris Cardambicus. And he must have interviewed me close to 10 years ago and has has been doing this kind of publishing at the intersection of uh, podcasting for a really long time. And um, I think, you know, want to give him some credit there. The other podcast that I really like is Bad at Sports, um, which is probably one of my favorite um, art podcasts. And they did a quick interview with me when I was in Chicago this one time, and I think they're mostly based out of Chicago. And they're still going strong. And a friend of mine, Lee Hunter, was on their podcast recently, which I'm going to check out. I haven't listened to that yet. But shout out to Bad at Sports. I think we have uh, this interesting affinity towards sports um, aesthetics, which is happening with the basketball courts. Um, and also, it's something I've worked in forever. So go and give them a listen. On this week's episode, we're trying something a little bit different. When I say we, I just mean me. Um... It's hard to get out of that that habit when you're talking about projects that are more than one person or it's something that you work on as part of work. But, you know, this has been this has been just a pretty much a one man show. That's not to say that people haven't been really helpful. Shout out again, Harry Bix for making the amazing theme song shout out again to Eric Hansen for helping me record the first episode and also just sort of get me situated again with thinking about recording audio but this episode is a creative duo and for a while I I sort of thought one-on-one conversations is where I wanted to keep things but I also want to create space for really whatever comes my way. And I think Morley House, 
which is a two-person collaboration between Dinara Asadulina and Christos Kakuros, who are two close friends of mine and amazing artists who work together in this beautiful way. It seemed silly to have one of them on um, when we were just going to be talking about work that they do together. And what's interesting about them is they work together. They also work with other artists. They are a couple. So there's a lot of a, a lot of um, intimacy that comes through in their work. And they do make books. I, I don't think books was the original intention of, uh, you know, what they were thinking of. Um, at the beginning, but they have these disparate practices that come together really nicely in the book format. So a little bit about Morley House. Dinara is a writer and um, Christos, it comes from more of an architectural visual art background. And I think the way that they think about those two things coming together is really interesting and it's something that we will be talking about on the episode. For example, Dinara's thinking a lot about how we consume text as image just in, in our daily life, given the devices that we're constantly on. And I think that Christos also has an interesting way of thinking about um, the book, multiple images, layering, um, which comes from a sort of theoretical framework that comes from, I think, his architectural past. So a little bit about Morley House is that they say that they are a duo, duo working at the crossroads of visual art and literature. They make books, installations, performances, and see them as vessels, depositories for narrative, comprised of textual and physical elements. And it's been really interesting watching their practice emerge in the past few years. I actually met Dinara online during the pandemic when I was doing some teaching assistance at Pratt, and she was one of the students in the class, and we were signing on starting at 11 p.m. London time to make a class that was around 5 p.m. New York City time, and I kind of noticed... We both seemed a little bit tired by the end of the class and you know, back in the pandemic days thinking about, oh, where are you all signing in from when students were kind of around the world? It, Dinara and I realized we both lived in London so, and, and both had this interesting uh, sort of interest in, in publishing or kind of like what the artist book, um, what its limitations were, what its possibilities were. Um, and at that time, um, her and Christos was working on a book called No One Is Laughing, um, and another book that had to do with their sort of experience walking the streets of New York and also being spending a lot of time with each other during the lockdown. No One Is Laughing is a really interesting book. Um, it has to do with Dinara's mother, um, embarking on a trip to uh, a part of Russia that their family is from, which is Tatarstan. And there's, um, there's so it's sort of like a visual 
essay, um, and also prompted Dinara to ask her mother some questions um, just about this this sort of um, ancestry that maybe um, they had they hadn't breached. So the book became actually um, a nice catalyst for uh, conversations around um, memory, also kind of like ambiguity of um, of of that lineage and also I think like Tatarstan and what that means having gone through Soviet um, years and now as a Republic of Russia and and that brought us to a conversation about Donara's own educational work she runs a school for children in Russia that um, has kind of arts education at its core and she talks a lot about um, the sort of celebrating the diversity of um, a lot of the kids who are in that school. Um, I think the conversation is important to remember just kind of how ethnically diverse Russia can be, how many languages um, exist within a country that I think folks in the West might think of as kind of monolithic. Um, and... And of course, you know, Christos brings his own background growing up in Greece um, into the practice. And we had a really fun time all going to the Athens Art Book Fair last year. And it was really nice to kind of be in Greece with Christos and to be able to kind of see the, you know, the anarchist neighborhoods of Athens in a certain way and, um, and kind of be able to discuss what the island culture is like to in Athens in a way that comes from a more personal place of someone who's connected to the one of the islands and and not necessarily just um, just tourism. So the conversation covers a lot. I think architecture is really at the center of it, and it's interesting that architecture comes up so much. Um, I think I think about architecture a lot. Uh, these days, just given trying to navigate life in London, which is going through a sort of housing crisis, which is compounded by a cost of living crisis, and coming from a, a city that is much more dense, uh, it, it's been it's been interesting to think about like what potential solutions like that could be. So we spent a little bit of time um, thinking through some of those things. Um, some some hot takes emerge, um, but also I think um, Christos's background in in architecture really informs multiple other practices. So we talk about this kind of architecture to an other creative practice pipeline. How many good um, you know musicians and um, and thinkers and and other kind of artists uh, come from that kind of training. So please enjoy my conversation with Morley House.
Well, thanks for visiting, guys. Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, good to see you. So, how has your summer been? We've been in Greece for a month. In June, sort of before everyone went on vacation, we went on vacation and then we came back, started working, have been working nice. ever since. And this was to visit Christos's mom? Yeah, just, yeah. just to see our family. Yeah. yeah. Um, where does she live? In in Hios, which is next to Izmir, which is the like most eastern part of Greece. Yeah. And is that where you grew up? Yeah, yeah. Until like around eighteen. Or so. Okay, cool. Yeah. yeah. So, how was it to be back? What did you guys do? We kind of moved around. We went to Turkey for three days, oh, which cool. was very, very different from how Greece felt. It it was less touristic because Izmir doesn't have many tourists. Was that your first time to Turkey, or no? I've been there quite a few times. I think for because of the proximity. Yeah, for me it was kind of the first time. I've I've been when I was a child, but um, yeah. Izmir was like a proper city that I yeah. And it's crazy how it's how like an hour by ferry away from from Greece from here, but it looks completely different. It's a great place, and it's very it feels very much like a city compared to many other cities in Greece. Right. Yeah, and it, it's a beautiful place, and I quite like the fact that there are not that many tourists compared mm. to. Greece is often flooded with tourists compared yeah. to like parts of Turkey where they're more. I don't know if it was just uh, this summer, but I felt like everybody went to Greece this summer. Like I couldn't turn on Instagram without someone being in Athens and specifically. Athens, yeah, yeah, but there there is a part of me that thinks it's because we made the Athens Art Book Fair look really fun <laughs> last year. We um, made the tourism, yeah. <laughs> um. So, but where, where your mom lives? What what's it called again? Hios. Hios. Yeah, yeah. Um, is there any tourism there? Not or? as much as other islands. Yeah, it has quite an interesting history as a place because partly it it's with maritime and there are quite a few ship on, ship owners like old families that where they run like different businesses with cargos, and the other big part of the island is the mastic the resin that they grow mm. which is a big thing in terms of produce which is like a resin that has also therapeutic stuff for your oh, stomach okay. what is that yeah. used for do you know it's or? it's interesting because from medicine to like it's complicated because they use it for all kinds of stuff right so from medicine to cooking like antibacterial yeah for, it has like Hands use it for literally Everything. like from your bathroom to, to, to pastries and uh, yeah whatever. So, so <laughs> coffee. Wow, yeah. that's insane. Everything you can imagine. When you were in Turkey, did you get into any arguments about who invented Greek? Is it Greek coffee or is it uh, Turkish coffee? We thought about that because <laughs> it's exactly the same. Yeah. Well, from what I observed, I think it's technically the exact same coffee. <laughs> so. I, I wasn't quite sure about, you know, because it kind of, when you try the coffee, you realize that actually there's not single difference. So it's like Greek, Greek or Turkish coffee or something. It's yeah. not really. Yeah. And it's just <clears throat> like, I think people in, in the Balkans you do the same coffee and it's like, so, oh, it's Serbian coffee. It's exactly. like, it's the same coffee. It's the same yeah, coffee. Yeah. <laughs> um, so are you working on anything at the moment? Yeah. yeah, we we are making 
Well, we're in the process of making a book with uh, the Henry Moore Institute, mm. which is part of the fellowship in that Leeds. you yeah. you have the fellowship yeah. there, or is it a joint fellowship? So it was funny because um, yeah. Chris. So you apply um, as a person. Uh, so Chris has applied. He got. The, we kind of worked on the application together, but he got it and. Um, what you get is a month in their accommodation and access to the library, which mm-hmm. is the biggest library in the world on sculpture. Oh, wow. And so so we went together and they were fine with that. And we worked in the library together and we wrote, well, I, we, we made a book where I was writing, Christos was drawing. But the interesting thing was we were sitting in the library using only the materials allowed in the library. So... If it's drawing, it would be only like pencils or mm. like you can't bring watercolors. Right. Um, so, yeah, and it's, it's a book about an experience of being an artist um, and looking for a safe space, which a library could be possibly a safe space. But then what happens when you leave it or mm. what happens to you when you are in the safe space and how do you heal your traumas? Or what do you need to, to heal Things mm. is a safe space enough or, or, or not? Right, it's a safe space from nine to six. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. a great point. Mm. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's mostly drawings and then the text. But what's quite interesting is how, in a sense, it's all was it was all produced in the library. But at the same time, how it will evolve is very different from what we made in the beginning. Mm. But we're kind of restricting ourselves to making. A book out of what we already made there rather than rethinking and editing everything right so it's quite <clears throat> raw but the layout in a sense is very strict and kind of has certain rules that we have to mm. follow in order to make mm. the final kind of and does it follow a similar format to how you guys normally work which is sort of dinara producing text mm-hmm. um and christos doing visuals and those being kind of juxtaposed or that's a great question, yeah. I think, because I feel that it's very much what you just described. Because Dinara and I, with Morley House, we focus specifically, we pay extra attention to the following topic, which is the relationship between image and text. Mm. Yeah, and how text and image play together on that can, in this space that we construct yeah. so that's sort of embedded in the Morley House mission exactly so I think so. yeah. and I yeah. think lately we've been exploring a lot about how image can be read as text and how texts can be perceived as images or mm. symbols because like, I'm thinking in terms of a feed like a news feed that we usually have in front of us like the Instagram thing that you said. So yeah. I think we perceive in today's world text and image together always. Mm-hmm. So we just read it. Yeah. And at the same time, images are not what they used to be with like uh, film photography and stuff. So I think we try to get as close as possible to, to blend them as much as we can. Right. Yeah. For the fellowship, is there an expectation that there's um, that there's like a research output um, with the fellowship? We have a panel. So um, mm. September 30, so there's an amazing exhibition now there. It's called The Weight of Words. And it's all about sculpture and poetry, the relationship. Mm. I think they have been looking a lot into relationship between poetry and sculpture. And um, so 
like 15 famous artists, yeah. Banu Kapil and others. So one of those artists is uh, presenting a book and they put us together with him to mm. have a panel. Oh, cool. So we're going to launch it there yeah. and have a panel. I mean, there's associations with books being sculptural, obviously. I mean, we've talked about this like a million times. Um, but then also like, you know, movements like concrete poetry mm. or like, you know, words having structure, um, even going further back into like other languages kind of like built around like numerical systems and stuff. Um, was there any sense that like working in book format was in any way like pushing the boundary of like what Henry Moore Institute was um was like expecting from you or are they expecting more like traditional sculptor working in bronze and wood and stuff like that i think that was a great part about the fellowship is that there was a lot of flexibility and freedom i felt that people the in a sense the people who work and kind of really support the whole mission of the henry moore institute believe in in a sense, in in your own freedom to choose and to make what you want and what you feel is right. And that's why I feel all the outcomes are quite unpredictable in a very good way mm. within the Institute and the Fellowship Program. Yeah. And I- including their exhibitions. All exhibitions are varied vastly from mm. one to the other. So they bring something new to the table all the time. Mm. Mm. Yeah. But I think particularly with our um, goals, it was interesting how the understanding of an artist's book really changes all the time. Because if you go to the library, you see the main section where it's um, a lot of ar- artists' publications, but they're like this thick, thick volumes, which costs a lot. And, uh, right, uh, illuminated. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's hard, hard to produce. And we did a workshop for teenagers there, and we wanted to show them books from the collection. And we've been picking a lot of books, and then we have this huge pile, and... I was looking at it, I was thinking, something feels wrong. And what felt wrong was that all these books are so hard to produce for these teenagers to be yeah. sort of inspired to make mm-hmm. something of their own. But then I found a section with um, what they call periodicals, I think. And, and they're all the independent, smaller publishers who are now um, around in the UK and in the world. They, they have so many, but they're just kind of tucked away together with uh, um, exhibition catalogs. So they... they uh, they actually catalog, catalog artist books with publication, like periodicals. I think they call and, them periodicals, yeah. or like all the exhibition catalogs are there as well. So it's um, it's hard to find those because yeah. they are all together with the catalogs, um, and there are a lot. So yeah. so then we took a lot of those, and we had mostly books that you look at them and you understand that you could self-publish. Right. As well. Yeah. That's something I remember very well. Because they told me, oh, there, there are hundreds of of artist books. And when we arrived, I was looking around, where are all the artist books? Mm-hmm. Because they were great books, incredible books, very rare books also, and out of print, mm. great stuff. Yeah. But then I was thinking, where are the artist books? Right, but then right. they were in the other room. <laughs> well, I think like people now would refer to those books as sort of like in like the book arts arena, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So these are like... Um, and it's... Yeah, it's interesting thinking back to even, yeah, like what you were saying, how the uh, how the 
terminology has changed. Like what we refer to an artist book now um, is different than, you know, probably what it was 30 years ago. Um, I remember talking to Max Schumann at Printed Matter um, a while ago. I think we were, I would always see Max when we were traveling for other book fairs. So I think this was like we were in Hong Kong or something. And he was saying like what people call a zine now actually in the 70s or 80s you would call just an artist book right but i think people think that folded having a staple through it just makes it a zine where actually a zine had to have some kind of um quality of it it being like a serialized publication or having to have like a very specific theme which was normally kind of having to do with some kind of countercultural yeah, yeah. thing. Um, so even the notion of like what a zine is has changed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. This is a great topic. Yeah, yeah. we, yeah, we we'll great talk part. about zines a lot yeah. in the same manner. Right. Yeah. And you see, that's something that from what you just described, I'm quite concerned. Like, I never, to like be honest with you, I never thought that Morley House makes zines mm-hmm. and what you just described and often people say oh I, I really liked your zine like under the Soviet star for example right but the, what you just described is way closer to what the zine is rather than like a volume that resembles more of a book mm-hmm. rather than and that's that's a very interesting topic yeah. yeah like when with endless editions when we did a sports that was like a proper mm-hmm. zine because yeah. it was like yeah. For a while, it came out once a month, um, which is insane. But, um, but you know, the, the idea is that, like, it had one theme. It sure. was always, it was kind of like, had this, like, yeah, self-published magazine mm-hmm. feel to it. And there was focus on sports also, if I remember. Yeah, exactly. Well. But you uh, had sports, well, yeah, serious sports. Yeah, yeah, it was just called sports. Yeah. Right? <laughs> but then Endless Editions produced a lot of things that were... Um, that people would call a zine because, you know, now they recognize this physical format, but the physical format itself is not necessarily, I think, attached to it being a zine. But I think at the same time, like, these definitions are are becoming more expansive than anything. So it's kind of, I don't know, it's sometimes like how much breath do you really want to lose, like trying to define these things because especially in the world of artist books, like what's liberating about it is that it can be whatever you want it to be. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, but so, so you're working on one specific book now and where are you in that? Or, or maybe what's interesting to hear about is sort of like what your process is like and Mm -hmm. where you are at in that process. Mm -hmm. That's a, again, a great question because (laughs) I feel that I'm only yeah, good gr- questions. Great questions today. This yeah, is the only good, only good question podcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's because the the process I think is what made Morley House from the very beginning. Uh, as because Dinara sees a writer, she primarily writes rather than draws. Ninety five percent of her mm-hmm. work is writing. And yeah. For me, it's the exact other way around. I do write five percent of what mm-hmm. I do is writing. It was just like scribbles on paper on what I draw or paint. And 95% is visual stuff. Or even when I use text, I just see chunks of visual bits and bobs. Yeah. And we were working together on the potential, like uh, potentially working together. So mm-hmm. while we were doing this, we started 
thing like putting on the table what we actually do and if you really put all these things together the closer you can get is the form of the book mm -hmm. because again even though i mentioned all the for example no one is laughing or under the soviet style yeah that we call them books for us it's more like a meeting point mm -hmm. and our process is a lot about what i produce and what dinara produces and whether there is an intersection mm. and when we find this intersection then this is when something comes out so we don't really work in a way of oh what or in way in a way that many people work with projects we projects happen later when there is an intersection that's yeah. from, at least from my that's side. interesting no, i agree i don't think we have like a defined process every time is different how we started working together like we sort of formalized that we are working together was during the pandemic that we were stuck in a tiny room and i was writing and you book. had to work together uh, almost it, we, <laughs> i was i was writing a pandemic diary and uh christos was in every paragraph of it because yeah. he was in every paragraph of my life and i came to i was doing my mfa at prad then and i came to my supervisor and she said so since there's so much of him in this book, why don't you work together on that? And that's how it started. Yeah. So, and then there was one way that we, we kind of played with all possible ways of, of working together. But then with the library book, it's a very different story because uh, I think... So I was going to make a book about um, my relationship with my father and the trauma aspect of it and whether healing is possible because mm. um, there's a phrase by Louis, Louise Bourgeois she said um, where we either die of the past or we become an artist so I read it and I thought about it and um, so my story with the father kind of unfolded around this phrase and I thought to make an exhibition where reading won't be really possible, but there will be some fragments that you could see, mm. more like an installation. And then the library book was in parallel and we were not going to connect them, but I realized that it's too much and I don't want to do the father project because it's too personal. Too personal. And then it blended in with yeah. the library book. Some, so it's in the center of the library right. book now. And then I guess this is how then Christus... Uh, so somebody starts usually uh, sometimes it's me sometimes yeah. it's Christus and then we kind of find um, where it's an interesting intersection yeah do you guys ever I mean it seems like you have a really healthy like dialogue when you're working right and like a healthy creative dialogue does it ever I mean given the sense that you're also a couple are you ever just like I can't I I can't stand you. I, I just don't want to listen to what you have to say anymore today. And then does that ever get in the way of the creative process? Or For sure. Because... <laughs> is like... 100%. Yes. <laughs> because also we are very different characters. Yeah. Yeah. And that has its pluses and minuses. Right. But I feel that because of the nature of our work and probably sometimes the way we see the world differs so much it creates an interesting contrast that it gives very clear signs when one ha or the other has to step back because mm. our, then what we produce is very different and the way it feels, looks or the content itself. So it's clear when something doesn't work because when the work meets, 
through us in a sense and i hope it's yeah. clear it's it becomes kind of very clear when there is a certain boundary that we shouldn't cross because for example sometimes one prepares like dinar will prepare a text that is really edited thought through it's kind of has a form that it could be even printed and then i come with drawings that they are clearly not there because the text is so different from a visual drawing mm. it kind of makes it clear that oh i need to work on this more or oh okay. we need to yeah, yeah. Mm. but yeah. i think for me working is less challenging than than human relationships in general uh, yeah. sort of outside of work i think even before i met christus for me work relationships are always easier than everything outside of work uh interesting and, um yeah and i think i i have been working intensely since the age of like 17 18 yeah. um, first in education uh, and then shifting to writing and art but um i pay a lot of attention to relationships with people yeah. and authentic relationships and i think to build authentic relationships without losing yourself respecting the other person and still having some meaningful connection is is challenging when you do the work it's just the project and yeah. um, it's the boundaries are clear but when you live together or you're close friends um, that is that is more challenging because you constantly have to ask yourself like am i comfortable now is the other person yeah i think it's more challenging so mm. living for, with christus is um is amazing but it's more challenging than working with christus yeah i could imagine yeah. it being challenging <laughs> <laughs> it's the same with me i think <laughs> do you feel like so you touched a little bit on your work uh in education yeah um do you want to talk a little bit about the school you run and because um, I'm sort of wondering, you know, you're talking about sort of like being attentive, especially when you're dealing with like young people who are 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 learning and you're sort of, um, you, you know, the one who's sort of safeguarding them and they're at, they're at a kind of a vulnerable time where they're very susceptible to ideas. To, I, yeah, I, I just wonder how much that comes into your like relating even to collaboration mm -hmm. but yeah um i think for me exploring what what human is has always been the center of my interest what, what is human and what's the potential of each individual yeah uh, and with teaching and um, creating learning spaces i think it's a lot about sort of having a learner's mentality even when you're a teacher so mm. everyone's a learner and we sort of create a space where because children usually are, are very sensitive to uh, authenticity and they right they can they, kind yeah, of read it yeah, yeah. and um, that's what we talk about with teachers all the time that no matter how much you sort of learn about methods and uh, programs if you are not feeling well yourself psychologically mm. or physically it won't work children won't really engage with you so it's, yeah. it starts with your own well-being uh, yeah so I think it's um, it's the same with with writing when I write I have to be completely honest with myself that am I actually believing in what yeah right yeah. as far as the school goes just for people who uh, are not aware mm -hmm. um, how long ago and you're the founder of the school yeah, yeah. Um, so do you want to 
just yeah, I can just say yeah. so, plug the school a little bit. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, so it's called Plumbeer School. So Plumbeer is a, a popular ice cream for children uh, from the Soviet <laughs> time, so everyone relates. And it's uh, since 2012, so over 11 years. And um, so it's for children from two to eight years old. It's an independent school, but we are very um, moderately priced and we don't raise the, pri- uh, the prices a lot so that people can afford it. And we have a lot of children from um, minority background, um, which is not that common for Russia because usually it's kind of you keep your ethnicity at home and you go to the school just to to be a student right. not to have a culture or a language or a religion yeah. uh, so that's something that was important for us to sort of give space for children to to bring their home environments to the school like, yeah and i remember even in our school when i was um i was working there full time and um a mother came and she was calling her children in Tatar across the school. We had two girls and I saw other parents turning at her and like not being very comfortable with the language. And I am hmm. Tatar and that's the language I've been hearing at home. And that kind of struck me that, wow, uh, people are actually sometimes uncomfortable. Or like my mom, she's the co-founder of the school. And when people sign a contract, they see not the name that they call her, they see her real name, the mm. Tatar name, oh, the one she has in the yeah. And then like, who is that? And then that, that bugs people out yeah, or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. So there are a lot of yeah. small things like that. So for us, it was important to have a space where you can be a full, authentic self. Yeah. Do you think that that is like leftover from kind of Soviet era um, kind of emphasis or I would say like de-emphasis on kind of cultural identity cultural minority and emphasis on religion sort of like creating a more like russian so or like a soviet yeah. identity yeah, yeah yeah it's like this picture i have in under the soviet star in the book where they're like i think 12 15 children from different uh locations in russia looking differently dressed differently but they are supposedly all under the soviet star under the soviet mm-hmm. umbrella uh, which I, I talked to my mom about it, who lived in the Soviet Union. She was a teacher there, and she said we looked into cultures of all these ethnicities, but it was more like we would wear, try to wear their clothes, or like it was very superficial, and that's how it was, um, right? Sort of normalized, like you can, yeah, it's very, very superficial. Yeah, you could kind of costume play as these exactly. people, but yeah, yeah, yeah. interesting. Um, and then, Christos, did you ever do any presentation to the students? Yeah, yeah I've done a couple. And it's very interesting because until uh, I visited the school, I was never really aware of how, in a sense, speaking or like working in an English environment is quite foreign to them. It's because... For example, in, ca- in countries like Italy, Greece, or like France, people are familiar with the English language there. I feel it's something that it's kind of not separated, but quite foreign and far away mm. element. So I could see that people were very eager from a linguistic point of view to see someone who speaks a very, very different language. Yeah. But at the same time, in terms of the school itself and me presenting different things, it really varied. But... At the, from what I showed them, I have taught a bit with yeah. them, like yeah. making art oh, that's so cute. together, yeah, or like pre- presenting. But I could see 
that apart from that, like the language was a barrier for me, mm. yes, which I wish I could speak to them in Russian or something. But I obviously couldn't yet. When are you learning Russian? Yeah, you sound <laughs> like learn it for Dinara. Dinara's aunt. Uh, yeah. I like, hear this once every three weeks. <laughs> this question. But so. I think Christmas is very modest because children loved him, and I think he's um uh, he's. A, how do they say it? A natural? Yeah, <laughs> as, as, yeah. as a teacher, um, we would easily have meetings, like teachers' meetings, and we'll, we would leave kids with him. He would be oh, okay. absolutely. And you did this in person, right? Yeah. Yeah. One of my, the first thing I did was kind of an impromptu thing. From very young age, I, I, I haven't figured out why yet. But I think you, you might be a helpful person to discuss about <laughs> this. I had this kind of, I have this interest like i'm really keen on flags for some reason the relationship people have with flags and in europe i think it's a very charged topic in a way like a taboo people don't talk about flags but when we were like in queens i realized that people are really into their flags oh yeah in queens for (laughs) sure and i realized that this is a place where i can talk about flags yeah and so unsurprisingly when i was in st petersburg with dinner in the school uh, there was this kid left alone so they told me oh like look look after him like if you need something and so I was just sitting reading a book and then I approached him like let's just make some flags random flags you know yeah. your own flag and we started making and he was so engaged and so this was one of the first thing that I did in, in the school making That's flags so with this yeah. young uh, student are there because um, I know like the Russian Federation has like I think people from outside of the so you know post Soviet world or Russia kind of just start you know think kind of like Russia is this monolith, especially yeah. Also, when it comes to uh, ethnicity and identity, I, th- I think there's a lot of people out there who just don't really know that Russia is made up of people who speak different languages and. Um, but each of the small like semi-autonomous states of the Russian Federation also has kind of its own flag too, yeah, right? Yeah, so do. so are the kids in the school, do you feel like there's an identification with, with individual, uh, I mean, yeah, I can't really speak to whether or not they're like devolved nations or, but is there kind of like a sense of identification with that before a Russian identity or is it hand yeah. in hand? I think it's, difficult because i think russia has a tremendous way in front of it so much work to do in this direction um it's still very uh yeah it's not how shall i put it it's it's not developed in terms of accepting differences and i think still outside of our school there are not enough spaces where you can um show your culture and be appreciated right right so i think kids know that they will graduate at like eight nine years old they will go to the next step of education they will have to comply with the sort of the general um, agenda Mm. Uh, i think it's different if you live in um, different republics like um, i'm tatar but i was i grew up in st petersburg which is predominantly um, a white city but tatarstan um, has so I think Tatar is, is an official language there and it's taught in schools and um, and 
Islam is is widely accepted, so uh, it's a different situation. Yeah. So I think for kids, and we Plumber School is located in Saint Petersburg, so kids always have to be mindful with, of the fact that they are in predominantly sort of um, a Russian city. Yeah. Is the um, is the Tatar language um, of like a Turkic? Mm-hmm. Uh, linguistic tree and the mm-hmm. the te- the script is also from um, kind of like uh, is is it sort of like an Arabic script or I, th- they, I think they got rid of it during I, I don't know exactly when but they adopted the the Cyrillic so they oh, okay. kind of adjust the Cyrillics okay. yeah interesting yeah. I think in one of the former republics I don't remember where one of the former Soviet republics um, they they changed Cyrillics to Latin scripture. Mm. Um, yeah, and it looks very different now. Yeah, that would be yeah. bizarre to, to yeah, see. Yeah, yeah. But, but none of them use actually like Arabic looking. Yeah. yeah. And Christos, how many times have you been to Russia now? It's been... How many times have I been? Like three, four times? Okay. Yeah. yeah. But, but yeah. we lived for half a year. Half a year. Okay, and wow. We, it was like three, four years ago. Yeah, and I remember vividly the first time. It made me a great impression how different because growing up on, in a sense, like the European side of this kind of continent where we all live yeah, here. Yeah. I grew up thinking that Russia, like Dinara mentioned, is like a very homogeneous kind of unified nation where people are predominantly white. And I never thought I we were never taught in school and that there are different religions in Russia. It's so in a sense, it's what we perceived as. So when I arrived there, also you know, in terms of history, what we heard arriving there, you see a very very different place from what I at least from my experience yeah. I was exposed to, and this made a kind of a I was very surprised. So. Mm. It's it was very very different from what I was expecting. Yeah, yeah. How long after you all met did you first go to Russia together? I think it was after Cambridge when we when we we first met in Cambridge when we started in a sense dating yeah. together. <laughs> and who asked who out again? It was. <laughs> I think it was. Probably me because I remember how the the whole thing started. It was it's kind of morally house related. Yeah, <laughs> okay. it is. Yeah, it's yeah. part of it's part it, of the origin it's story. It's all part of the story. Yeah, Even right. looking at you, you're part of the story, <laughs> Anthony. <laughs> no, we met in Morley House. Morley House was a building for postgraduate students ah, in Cambridge. Right. Because a lot of the times, like people be like, I googled Morley House and what is this? Exactly. Uh, like yeah. I couldn't find. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yes, and uh, we met like a typical morning person at four a.m. or something. Yeah. There was this after small after party in the accommodation. So you guys had been up all night partying. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay, after cool. like a formal dinner and Harry Potter themed formal dinner. <laughs> So, very specific. And I had been to this dinner before because it's like, um, it's very specific. There are owls going yeah, up and down owls. the hall. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
the first time is exciting the second third time it gets do you think that that's a tradition that actually predates harry potter that they have then i think it's first harry potter okay yeah yeah. not as cool yeah but so yeah and i was kind of halfway through the course dinner was had just started and we met in this random kitchen and that's how also Morley House started, the name obviously last we just said. So we met there and then we started talking about architecture. Right. Primarily in education. Yeah, yeah that's a, that's always a great pickup topic. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Start talking architecture. And... Specifically in Japan because yeah. they have great uh, school, school buildings. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> that's, always... so that's how it started. And then later on how we were traveling a, a lot because we had to meaning there were different kinds of stuff uh, for example Dinara got the scholarships she had to be chivening outside the country for two yeah. years mm-hmm. we were not together officially by that time so we moved to Greece for a very tiny bit but then Dinara went to Russia for a couple of months so I thought to visit and that was the first okay. time oh, wow. I mean like when you when you're not married you cannot yeah. really like travel because because now it's easier for me to travel in, in the European Union because of Christmas but yeah there were a lot of obstacles yeah Visa yeah I could imagine yeah 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 because yeah. um yeah Russia's pretty pretty um tight with the the visa mm-hmm. situation as well right yeah, so yeah. For yeah, sure. Interesting. So both at Cambridge and you were studying architecture. Architecture. And Dinara was studying education. education. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And so how was how was studying at Cambridge? I think I feel that this course really personally really changed me compared to my previous education because it's very specific. At least for how me. How so? Yeah, yeah. In a way that there is a strong academic element to its program, meaning re- heavily research-based, but at the same time, the openness of the field, in a sense of of the field of architecture, mm-hmm. being an architect, creates it created a very interesting blend of being free to do whatever you want, but at the same time having academic constraints. Right. So it kind of disciplined me in a good and a bad way. In a bad way, meaning that I really struggled to express exactly what I wanted to do. But that was primarily, I think, something that I had to deal with myself. I think it was an incredible course. Mm. And I feel the environment really, at least personally, expanded my understanding of how education can be. Yeah, It has a very interesting blend with, with being... A conservative also academic setting but at the same time very often incredibly liberal and yeah. forward-looking which i personally enjoyed a lot. it's interesting th- i mean so this question is going to be loaded because there's kind of like two sub questions here because there's obviously a difference in uh arts education in the states and in the uk for mm-hmm. example so i know that um kind of degree program like studio degree programs in the states are much more uh you know you'll actually go through like um semesters of process you know or you'll take a course in um etching or lithography and the class time is actually spent uh, doing that and then you're expected kind of with your 
studio time to be producing work on your own towards a dissertation. So there's already that difference, but then it's sort of like architecture exists uh, in a little bit of a different space with studio art. Um, so what was the what was your education like? Like what were what did outputs look like? And um, yeah, sort of um, like if you could walk me through like what an assignment would kind of look like in architecture in an architecture program, because it's not something I, I kind of know too much about. Sure. Yeah. I feel that in this, I, I, I'm, a, I'm really fond of how architecture is being taught in the UK. And I think this is a great remark, what you just brought up, because I feel that in the States, architecture in a university setting is being taught in a very technical way, in mm -hmm. my opinion, apart from a couple of schools like the Cooper Union or right. the the one in California, the... I don't remember the name. Um, it's... SciArc. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I don't know that school, actually. A-R-C. Okay. Yeah, a great school. But the thing is, even then, it becomes too conceptual in a way where... In Britain, I feel that architecture in the university is practiced more as a fine art okay. course. Interesting. There is freedom and this comes with a price for everyone. And if some people are not ready to pay that price, it can be a very difficult process and very tiresome. And I feel that if one is creative and wants to be an architect, I don't think there is a better place. Mm. And so projects vary. And usually you're being, you have one main project to run throughout a year or two, yeah. one every semester. And what happens is like you're being given a, a kind of an argument in a sense. So you're being given a brief. You are supposed to build something there or you have this area and you have to create... You, to, to design something yeah. this is the biggest constraint and sometimes depending on the school it, how deep you need to go to technicalities yeah. but then you start you have your the process is very similar to what an artist does mm. and I think this is specifically um, an educational aspect that it's he it, I think it's a very British kind of way of teaching architecture mm. and I think it's really great because yeah. it gives you so much freedom to really understand yourself primarily and then when yeah. you get to an architecture practice then you can yeah it's yeah. interesting because the last per interview I did was with someone uh, named Harry Bix and he runs a project called East Anglia Records and does is sort of like a sculpture guy does a lot of kind of like community engaged work and is interested in this idea of like maintenance mm -hmm. art. Um, but his background is landscape architecture. Yeah. And it's interesting. I feel like everyone I know who has that architecture background is like, yeah, you go through this, these architecture programs and it's either like, you know, work on a development, work on a building or think about, you know, landscape architecture, you know, shaping like literally a landscape. But then it's always sort of like the best work is like when you apply these architectural ideas to other things. You know, I feel like architecture school is really good for mm -hmm. doing everything else except for architecture. Yes, yes. You know what I mean? Like, 
like architecture students go on to be great like guitarists and bookmakers why is that why is like you know what i mean like pink floyd's exactly it's like yeah you could just be like well i studied architecture and it just kind of like makes it it it, i don't know it's kind of a joke but it kind of just like thickens like thickens a practice a little bit because i feel it plays uh, yeah i think it's a lot has a lot to do with the fact that society expects you to do something very pragmatic mm-hmm. most of the time most people are being you know everyone we are expected to do something that makes sense so many of us are drawn who are moderately or like very creative to make something that makes sense which is like buildings or being you know in the medical world or doing something that makes sense but i think there is a bunch of people who want to make sense but then and they become architects but then i think this breaks while you're practicing architecture and you realize that you're way more creative than just you know getting done drawings for construction and yeah but you still have this this kind of practical aspect to your work i think from from the architects that i met through christos they all are sort of have this ability to make things by hand even like models or a chair because that's what they are being taught but also they have a great ability to dream and to, right. to be creative yeah. I, I found it very interesting how people are sort of they're practical but they're also they're able to conceive things yeah creatively. and some drift away so some become for example like you said artists or like furniture makers many great yeah. furniture makers are architects mm-hmm. or all kinds of stuff or others really invest themselves in construction which is still incredible yeah but like what draws you to architecture specifically as opposed to like sculpture yeah you know that's a good point because i feel that architecture really disciplined me in a way it kind of exposed me to to an environment that showed me that discipline helps Mm mm-hmm and it kind of created these constraints for a couple of years that I was also practicing architecture that now I have these tools that I won't necessarily be exposed to and the precision, you know, like being very precise on certain things mm. and having to be very accurate. Yeah. I take elements of that and I apply them, for example, in making a book or like designing a chair or yeah. making a painting. Has any of the architectural thinking rubbed off on you, Dinara? I think something that I really remember from our time in Cambridge. So we, you would go to the education library, which is a new building, and it's an incredible building. But then you go and see the books, they're all the most boring thing on the planet. <laughs> like, you can't make them more boring. Yeah. And they're expensive also if you were to buy something right. like that. Yeah. But then you go to the architecture department library, and they look incredible. And, and it's... For me, for example, it's almost as if the education books are less important, which is very sad because they deal with such a fragile matter, young young human beings. So I was talking to Christus about it, like, how come? Why do you think they're all like this? And I don't have an answer because I think in education there's not much value generally put on aesthetics. Um, mm. Christus likes to talk about how aesthetics are important and why yeah and i think this is something that architects pay attention to why why do you think aesthetics are important 
Because I think there is a certain kind of misconception about aesthetics where people think that aesthetics take over form and function. But I feel that they, in reality it's the opposite. It makes your life easier and less distressing in a way. Mm. So, and I feel architects, because they are supposed to create spaces that make your life better, simply put, and easier to live and safer and healthier, I feel that this, in my opinion, in an ideal world, could be distributed across different sectors. Right. And one, one example that I noticed recently is how specific in certain hospitals, like NHS gets in terms of visuals, I think this is a very good sign of how aesthetics are applied, mm. you know, with a very specific font, very specific logos, the colors that make you feel more familiar in certain space. For example, in education, I, I, I wish there was more of that. Yeah. And I, th- if, I think it will attract more people yeah. being part of education. Actually, um, it's, it's interesting you brought up Cooper Union before. Um, one of the... the I always cite this as being like an interesting um, architectural um, project was actually like a chain of grocery stores in the U.S. called the Grand Union. And the architect is the same person who designed the I Heart New York logo. Um, Just so I'm not being dumb, I'm going to look this up. His name was... I don't remember. Um, uh, but I think what's interesting about it is um, um, it basically it, it was this idea that the architecture of the store and the design of the store is just as important as the logo of the store Sorry. and that lighting in every single one was going to be the same which isn't it, I mean which sounds crazy now because we're actually kind of used to that like if you go into whole foods or you go into like in london there's like harvest or sainsbury's or tesco they all look the same Mm -hmm. um but that was actually kind of like a breakthrough Mm -hmm. idea hold on i gotta find the name this is so he designed i think also the at&t logo before the first one um i think it's it's something that's cited at least in talking about architectural history in this kind of like interesting um more like applied sense <laughs> you know mm-hmm. um um but yeah and and you know we've spoken a lot before about um like the link obviously between like uh, thinking about books kind of spatially like as an artist mm-hmm. book um, um, how big of a, a part of your practice does that take? I was, re- I remember thinking about this yesterday that we were discussing how, yeah, we were like obsessed with this last yeah, year for yeah. quite a while. Like a building, building is a book, is a book <laughs> yeah. and a book is a building. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I think that's very much also comes in, like, in relation to what we were just saying about architecture and how I, I personally benefit from studying before architecture is the fact that the way you construct the building people probably including actors they might yeah tell me that, how you make a building yeah yeah they might think that no this is not probably it but for me it is that a building and a book have a lot of similarities 
because the the idea of for example how you come up with a book or how you come up with a building is again an idea and all it all everything runs through ideas but yeah so i feel that the book has its own space it has restrictions you cannot build for example a building also in an endless kind of field again the field will stop somewhere Mm -hmm. the ownership how much space the owner has and the book the book is the same because the bigger the book gets the more expensive it becomes that's true (laughs) it's the same in architecture you gotta use yeah exactly and the more you can build for example so in a sense you have a certain area to deal with Mm -hmm. and this defines of how high you can go and how much you can spread so what about conservation as well right so like building building something that has to have sort of like maintenance built in Um, or I think you know almost like in the Japanese city sense uh have a timeline of when it's going to be demolished. Exactly. I mean, there's, if you think about, sorry, now I'm just thinking out loud here, but like if you think about publishing, in a sense, like a newspaper eventually, you know, is going to go into mm. the bin. Yeah. Whereas yeah. A, a book, you're going to expect to kind of live up, live on in a library forever. Yeah. And you right? see it in, this, in our cities also yeah. today. You see buildings that you know that they won't last. Yeah. And then it's the same with a book. For example, if the book is just paperback with glue at the back, you know that at some point, one or two pages will start. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very soon. Yeah. So, uh, so you know, that's interesting. Do, what, how do we feel, architecturally speaking, about the city of London? Do we have any? Do we have any like uh, controversial hot takes? <laughs> I remember that you you were very keen with the housing issues here. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a real thing. Good time to mention, you know, joining a co-op, which I'm really happy about. Um, Because, yeah, there is a housing crisis here. I mean, I'll give you my hot take first, and then maybe you can follow. Please. Um, London is built and designed in a way to house, like, family units, probably a four right so most kind of plots of land at least you know around kind of like east london north london um you know you're talking about uh buildings designed to house one family with four people and that's just not how the population of london lives anymore Mm -hmm. unless you're super well off in Mm -hmm. which case i don't even think you're living in east london anymore so i actually think that the the just the way that the the buildings and the city is conceived is not in line with the way that people uh not not a way that would be comfortable for people to live whereas on the other hand and this is like cited all the time with like housing rights people that Tokyo builds a ton all the time. They're giant buildings with little studios because there's a giant young population of single people. So that's my hot take about London architecture that I still don't think it's it's like not built or there's some kind of dissonance between its residents and how it's built. Before you say, I just, I've been thinking about a similar topic, but my question is always, are... 
other cities like that? Well, you just mentioned Tokyo that probably yeah. tackles the problem. But like, is New York like that or other cities? So, Well, um, New York has a lot more... I, I, I know that um, there was a concerted effort to build single occupancy units at a certain point. And so like the highest density of those are the Upper West Side, actually, like the whole West Side of Manhattan, really, mm-hmm. um, which is where you get the joke that divorced men live on the Upper West Side, yeah. divorced women live on the Upper East Side. Um, but actually, you know, the, I feel like studio apartments are kind of easy to find in New York, where here it's not only that they're hard to find, it would be like a little bit weird to even see a studio i've never even seen a studio apartment in yeah yeah so yeah no it's it's i think it's very complicated and there and there are a lot of i feel that it's very controversial because the the city is huge and very very flat and this comes with a lot of historical responsibility of preserving the 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 infrastructure the existing infrastructure so but i personally believe that built cities need to evolve and obviously in a european setting i feel this can be very provocative yeah but uh, if we have to be honest people will be living in cities and the more people believe that they can live in the countryside the more unsustainable it becomes. Yeah. Cities is the, are, are the future. So yeah. I think that, at least if I had to give a solution, would be making towers that they're incredibly well designed, they're spacious, they, they give people the ability to be flexible mm. and to really express themselves within certain units and create very sustainable spaces where the building itself acts as a community hub. And then, of course, not like what Le Corbusier did in, uh, proposed in France back in time where there were like these huge towers popping out, mm-hmm. rather than more small-scale towers that, in a sense, they have gardens around and they are small and they communicate with each other. This way, and, and also the, the other thing that comes to the, on the table, and I think this is where the provocative aspect of this whole thing is, is ownership. You know, mm, people... Yeah. Own, want to own where they live. The yeah. people, or at least even if you rent, gradually own at least part of what you have been living for 5, 10, 20 years. I think this is very important. And I feel that people here live in a very flat city that is extortionately expensive. Yeah. And there is also this idea of even if you look at it into like the word it's of landlord you know the landlords land baron exactly yeah. you know like they hold a lot of power and i'm not saying oh we should distribute these and we but i feel that more welcoming policies for uh, both for architects to create this kind of spaces mm-hmm. and for owners or potential owners of living in these spaces will create at least some hubs like communities where right. people can coexist and they don't have to, in a sense, worry when the next rent will come yeah. rather than build up some kind of share, like co-ownership of building up this kind of 
owning gradually and then you can share like sell your mm. share yeah yeah I, I don't know the details my grandparents they they went through a lot of struggle moving from Tatarstan being chased by um, Stalin and stuff to to Russian town they first lived like in a little dugout but then they got a job in a factory and slowly slowly they were given a plot and they were actually building this building together with like six seven other families they were building the the building where they will be living so uh it's a two-story building and we still have that flat uh and i spend every summer there but it's just crazy to think how you are actually building the building where you will be living i just chris Chris has talked about the sort of more proactive um rights of the people who live in in a space and i think maybe this yeah i think for example building your own building in (laughs) london could be quite extreme but i think well from this what you can take for example what dinara just said is that we have to be more brave and and i feel that this is something that i personally think we are missing today in britain we have to be more risky and Mm -hmm. we have to take more risk because there are the resources you know we have like britain has like you know in in london specifically from one of which i have lived mostly at least like half of my life they're incredible incredibly creative people there there are resources we're like a very diverse society there are the people we we're not missing people Mm. you know everyone is here there's no lack of ideas exactly people are here which which means that we can do stuff it's just i feel what we're missing is the risk you know we have to be more brave there is so I wanted to bring up two things because uh, I was when I was writing my dissertation last year, which had to do with kind of the DCMS and yeah. thinking actually about like mass media and heritage and yeah. architecture. Yeah, yeah. And um, I, I I bought this book called uh, On Tall Buildings and bought it from Tender Books. And it was like a conference, an architecture conference that happened in Australia um, and there was this uh, keynote paper that was talking about kind of like the fear of the tall building and kind of like tall buildings where, uh, like architecturally speaking, sometimes like depth within a building can kind of equate to power, sort of like the most power. If you Even if you go into kind of an office, the most powerful people sit furthest in the back where the tall building kind of, the you know if you could imagine like Lex Luthor from um, Superman is like in the top penthouse right but then I think not just that I think there's something specifically kind of phobic about tall buildings in London like and I think about like J.G. Ballard's High Rise novel um, from the 70s um, which I actually haven't read but um, having to do with kind of like this fear that that the high rise would kind of like cause this like societal decay right because it's kind of like not at this human scale but i don't understand like where this fear comes from like and also um you know not to get on kind of like uh like a negative criticism of london but there's plenty of cities with with enormously tall buildings in close density that are still able to maintain community and and like all the things that I think people associate like tall buildings 
uh, or like a, a particularly high skyline with with these other dangers it's like i just don't really know where that comes from yeah. you know like where does that fear come from that's my that's probably my like it's just my guess but it comes from the kind of we compare things so the ideal in like when you watch like um, there is an advertisement or something mm-hmm. the ideal world is not inside the city it's where the rolling hills are and you're you have like different flowers blooming around you yeah but that's not our reality see that also scares the shit out of me exactly. i don't want rolling i don't exactly. want rolling fields and flowers <laughs> It, yeah, put it in the park in the middle of the city, exactly. and that's fine. Yeah, I want the wild to be wild. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. need me. That you know what I mean? Yeah, I think you too. Are very similar. yeah, exactly. <laughs> like if you there is a meme too. It was like, how would you develop? I mean, sometimes I go into this like housing policy Twitter like sphere, if we can even still call it Twitter anymore. And I saw this meme, and it was like two images side by side it was the same island like a like a little you know digital graphic of an island and it it was like you have 100 uh living units how would you develop this island and on the left it's 100 little units throughout the whole island and all of the forest is destroyed and then in one it's just like two buildings mm-hmm. where the re- like 90% of the island is still kind mm-hmm. of like wild forest. Mm-hmm. And I even think for people who people who are like, I want to be in the country and I want to be in nature. It's like, why wouldn't you want to be in nature that is actually more natural? Right. right? Yeah. So I actually think even from a green perspective having denser cities makes more sense, yes, yes, you know. Yeah, um, yeah Crystal says the same of yeah. wood when we chat about it, how it's actually not very sustainable when everyone lives on like a small house in a stretch of land. Yeah, yeah. And, and also the, I don't know, like kind of having grown up um, like, very, you know, very close to New York City, but still very much in suburbia. Like, I don't know, there's something also culturally about suburbia that I don't really love right mm-hmm. and i think mm-hmm. i think you know who's like i want my kid to grow up in suburbia yes i mean like maybe in the in the mid 20th century like the, suburbia was still kind of an experiment right for sure like and With there was a, a lot of different industry yeah different industry kind of post-world war Two. there's like all this development happening and kind of yeah, being sold to people in certain ways, and it had never really happened before, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. But I, I don't know. I'm not rushing into any place that's not walkable exactly. or exactly. So I don't know. Maybe one day. I think it's inevitable. In the at least some kind of tower. I don't think, and I'm not an advocate for building just constantly towers (laughs) but i think different interventions within the city that create some good kind of case studies Mm -hmm. of what we just described it's it's the future i would actually um i would actually give london urban planning some praise uh with the council flat program (laughs) when that was developed with actually being able to develop a lot really fast throughout the city. Um, 
so I, you know, I, like going back to what you're saying, like I think it's all possible, but no one's no one's building council flats like that anymore. You know, mm-hmm. um, actually, right around here, there's like amazing old council flats, and in Shoreditch, there's that. There's, I mean, I think they're all privately owned now, but they're actually the first council flats I think in the country. Oh. And the they're all around this kind of like mound, and it's kind of there's some kind of like little park that you sit in, and and um, apparently that was like a literal mound of rubble after World War Two that oh. you know they decided to kind of like build out from there. So yeah, it's like you just think like you've done it, and you did a really good, and in a way, it was like one of the best. Um, like public housing programs um, kind of in Europe at the time because it was not isolating yeah, people to yeah, one yeah. part of the city where it was more like dispersing people throughout the city, so. right? Um, but yeah, something, uh, there needs to be new solutions. And, and I think that goes along with a lot of things. Um, you know, 20th century solutions may not Mm-hmm. may not cut it anymore like exactly. we're in a new world and stuff i don't know we're getting kind of heavy now i'm sorry <laughs> yeah for anyone who is interested in this kind of topic you yeah. might find it useful uh i felt jack self oh, yeah. from the real review he gives some kind of solid solutions in my opinion of what the future could be and how it can be quite sustainable in terms yeah. of in london yeah i feel that his architectural propositions for a future kind of more sustainable within the city are pretty decent in my opinion. Yeah. Very good projects. Yeah, I'd yeah. love to read that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he's great. Yeah, another so. architect turned publisher. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> there you have it. You're yeah. good company. So, um, so coming up for you all is so you have the you have the publication that you're working on kind of in conjunction with the fellowship. Um, but then also some changes were moving. Yeah. So what, yeah. Tell me a little bit about what's on the horizon. The, yeah. The no, place book also, right? Yeah. So we have, um, a friend whom we met at bound art book fair oh, great. last year. And, he is a publisher from Birmingham. Uh, Chris Neofito, his his project is called Out of Place Books, and he is a photographer. So his books are mostly um, connected to photographs. And somehow Christos and him came up with a project together, and I joined it. It's about um, an experience of being a migrant mm. uh, and sort of fragments of life. Um, for me, it's a lot about uh, memories and uh, reliable memories and unreliable memories and how your life kind of becomes fragmented when you uh, become a migrant. And we we are trying to find a link because um, his family is from Cyprus and we have Christos from mm. Greece. My family is Tatar, Russian. and we. But we do share this experience of... of uh, being from somewhere else and being not fully that, but not fully being perceived as from here as well. Yeah. So, um, so hopefully we'll present it at Bound this year. Oh, that's year. great. 
Yes. Did you? So you applied to go to Bound and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I hope we'll. I, yeah, I applied. I'm hoping you to do. This well? well, I'm hoping Perfect. to do just podcasts at the fair. This oh, is like amazing. Podcast is publishing. Yeah. You know, kind of setting so up. Cool. Like, I don't know. I don't know how it's going to look. And Lillian uh, Wilkie, who's one of the organizers, obviously is a studio mate of yeah. mine. Yeah. So this is also her studio as well. So um, that would be cool. Yeah, we should carpool because I don't know. Let's do it. Yeah. Um, that is I, great. Yeah, there's a bunch of people who I think are going. That's um, very so that's good cool. And then, Christos, you just got into your uh, a master's program? Yeah. Yeah. And probably the... The last one. The last masters. I had different attempts like before architecture. Like when I finished my masters in Cambridge, I thought, oh, okay, this is it. So now what? Uh, how do I move on with it? But then I kept coming back. Oh, yeah. And I, I, I just really need to get on with painting and drawing. And I realized that before that, there was this period where I thought, oh, yeah, philosophy. philosophy. Yeah. <laughs> the, the great world of philosophy. Well, it's funny because the Cambridge folks that we're kind of mutually friends with in London are all kind of like political thought people, too. Yeah. So I think you kind of drank the Kool-Aid. That was the trap, yeah. yeah exactly. So I was exposed to all these kinds of people, yeah, philo- talking about philosophy until I got like my analytic philosophy reality check in yeah. St. Andrews oh, okay. where I went yeah with Dinar yeah, we went for a year we lived yeah. one year in Scotland it was <laughs> incredible yeah it was incredible because I didn't do anything I mean I didn't do any degree nothing but yeah. living in didn't Sinai. do shit in Scotland no but walking <laughs> and swimming in the ocean yeah. and yeah, and, yeah. yeah was, a friend of mine lives in Dundee oh it's yeah. right next yeah. to it's um, right next to it yeah I mean there's a part of me that actually thinks like okay I have this visa to live in the UK there's nothing really I mean there's nothing really keeping me in London aside from the fact that I'm afraid to move anywhere mm-hmm. else but I think Scotland is tempting in the sense that I feel like culturally it's a bit more radical um, Absolutely, yeah. for sure I, yeah I, people and, are more open yeah, and yeah. more simple more straightforward that was amazing Scotland yeah. is great kind of left-wing leaning yeah I mean I I'm just I'm just concerned about winters there and darkness and I'm like if I if I find London to be like kind of slow and boring sometimes mm-hmm. I think I might really find I, I might struggle in Scotland a little mm-hmm. bit but theoretically mm-hmm. theoretically <laughs> I'm down with Scotland mm-hmm. you know? Scotland is great yeah. yeah the weather is different I yeah. think for sure Glasgow is amazing I'm Big fan of Glasgow. She has been for four hours. But, I, but Glasgow feels like St. Petersburg completely. Yeah. Um, you yeah. Were four hours? Four, five, five hours? on my own. Um, and Edinburgh is like Moscow, right? Yeah, something like this, more like imperial. Ar- yes. Architecturally. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, like that's a, a museum good point. City. Yeah. But I think the weather is a big concern because in the summer, it, it would never be below like 12, uh, above 12, 15 degrees uh-huh. or something yeah. uh, Celsius. So, so yeah, it was um, 
It was very windy and very But beautiful cold. weather also in a way that it's quite extreme in a good way. Like it plays well with the landscape. Mm. It gets really foggy and the architecture is very different from England. Yeah, yeah. Where, with bigger plinths like stone. <clears throat> beautiful. It w- you mean St. Andrews specifically? Yeah. Or, yeah. yeah. And, 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 and Edinburgh yeah. and many other places. It's a great place. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think I'm the typical American that's only been to Edinburgh. Not for fringe but um at, i just did a uh afternoon there and then i stayed in sterling yeah. for like the weekend and yeah. stayed in some castle i mean beautiful i mean, yeah i think i don't know how i would do after with, you know a little more time i i don't know the thing i might yeah i might i think this is also a fear and this might not be rooted in any reality but i think the fear too is that it would be a lot less diverse I think though it's pretty diverse, especially yeah. the big cities. Mm-hmm. And what I felt, at least from my personal experience, there wasn't really. I think people are very open to to other yeah. people. I I mean I don't I don't get the sense at all that the Scottish people wouldn't be open to yeah. to other people. I'm just sort of more like like my friend in Dundee said. Um, there's actually a lot of Italians at some place in oh. Scotland, whether it's Dundee or not. And I was just like, which Italians were like, I'm going to move from Italy to Scotland. <laughs> yeah, to Dundee. Yeah. The um, fun fact, though, about Dundee is there is a V&A museum. Though. Yeah, yeah. So. This friend of mine does some work for, for oh, the cool. V&A as well. Yeah. Cool. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, and that's not a knock at Scotland. It's more just saying if you come from like a warm climate with a lot of yeah. sun and you get to live by the sea and have like citrus fruit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. Scotland also is the place where Dinar officially started being a writer. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah. Yeah, really? yeah. yeah. Wow. So, yeah, give it a think. So, when are you doing your next MA? Uh, I haven't finished the previous one. <laughs> I I don't think I want to study anymore. I think yeah. That, yeah. Are you gonna finish the MA with Pratt or? I'm. Oh, and it's MFA. MFA. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm a bit concerned because um, I'm not sure it was what I expected in terms of um, openness of thought and critical thinking i think cambridge kind of spoiled me in terms of being able to explore ideas openly any mm. kind of ideas well in prad i i felt that there are certain topics that you can't bring up and you can't because i was interested in the topic of demonizing nations and um what do we sort of if we call some groups of people barbarian and others we call them civilized um what does it yeah how does it affect our reality and i don't think people there were very happy with me um exploring this topic mm. and yeah there was a lot of constraints so i i don't know it's, it's, it's an open open question yeah yeah well um, with the the MA, there's also kind of a relocation, not a huge relocation, but get to see a uh, you know different neighborhood of London. Yeah. Um, are you gonna miss North London or? I mean, I was always skeptical moving to South London, having been with Dinar most of our time in Crouchend, and North London is great, but I feel that 
when we went now to south, we are moving to Camberwell, which is very, <coughs> very far away. Sorry. No worries. From CSM, which I'm, I forgot to mention. Oh, yeah. It's Central starting. Martins, yeah. Yeah. The one and last, probably. Most definitely, course, uh, on fine art. I feel that North London is great, but... I, I don't know how to explain this. When we move now, to, now that we're in in the process of moving to South London, I feel that the areas they really reflect, at least in my opinion, what's going on in London. For example, I feel that it's so, such a diverse. All these neighborhoods are so diverse that I feel that this is like a, a great place where you actually sense how diverse London mm. is, and it's. It seems to me, at least, I might be wrong, really flat, which is great for cycling. More down to earth. <laughs> yeah. 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 And people yeah. interact. You can see people just living their life. Well, yeah. North London feels a lot about, uh, I don't want to say showing off, but a lot about mm-hmm, having a, like a persona. Yeah, it's kind of about like this aspirational life. Of, yeah, like, yeah. yeah. Exactly. It depends, of course, you have like wood green, you have Finsbury Park. That's true. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, South London felt more spacious, more spacious. Yeah, I think you guys will like it. I'm there now. So, You've yeah, been there, we'll be, yeah. We'll be neighbors for a little bit. Uh, is your co-op in, uh, in the, South? The co-op I just got into actually is um, works with buildings in West London, which is like a whole other... Yeah, that's a deep, whole yeah, different that's world. Yeah, that's a whole different world. Um, that you have to say that when you say West London, you have to say that's a whole different world. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, but there's no timeline, um, you know, as far as like getting a new flat or anything. So, but anyway, best of luck with the move. Thank, Thank you. you. And good luck with the masters. And I can't wait to see the new book. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for inviting us. It's Thank a, you. For yeah. The and good luck with the podcast. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. It's been great. And thanks for being on the show. Yeah, this is great. Thank you. That was Morley House, Dinara and Christos. Thank you so much for coming on the show. You can actually find both of us at Bound Art Book Fair at the Whitworth Art Gallery, Manchester, 25th through the 26th of this month. Come by the table. Might just ask you to do a little interview. You can see all of Morley House's books there, along with multiple other amazing publishers again special thanks to harry bix for creating the theme song that you're listening to right now give us a follow on instagram if you can and be sure to share the podcast it's available wherever you get your podcasts thanks for tuning in and see you next time